Welcome to Word Processing, a resource of Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. Listen in as we discuss issues of God, His Word, and His people. Well, hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Word Processing. My name is Josiah and I'm one of the pastors at Oak Ridge Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. And today we welcome back to the podcast Dr. Fred Shea. Dr. Shea has been actively involved in formal ministry for more than four decades, both in the pastorate and in the academy. He's the founder and president of Graceline Ministries, a theology professor at Grace School of Theology and managing editor of Grace Theology Press. He has a number of books published covering a variety of topics. And early in the history of word processing, Dr. Shea joined us to talk about salvation and more specifically, how to rightly understand salvation as it's revealed in scripture. It's obviously an incredibly important topic, and it was really well handled that day. And so if you haven't listened to that episode yet, or if you could use a refresher and want to revisit that discussion, I'll link to it in the show notes below, or you can find it easily on our website as well. Well, today we're going to talk about a related but distinct topic, that of growing in the Christian life. So we've talked, as I mentioned, about being saved, and now we want to talk about living the saved life or maturing in Christ. But first, Dr. Shea, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to chat with you again. Josiah, it is wonderful to be here. I look forward to our discussion, and uh, I think it's starting to uh, maybe get a little warmer up there in Canada. The thaw is upon us, yes. That's good. Well, let's start here. The Bible clearly invites each Christian, Dr. Shea, to grow up in Christ, obviously, to mature in godliness. Maybe start with just a blanket definition. What exactly does that mean? What does it look like practically in the life of a believer to mature? Well, I think the ultimate question here, or the the meta question involved with this has the answer of being conformed to Christ, right? Isn't that really the transcendent there? Mm-hmm. Hey, what do I want out of my life? Well, I want to be wealthy, or I want to be famous, or I want to have a good family, or I want all these things. Those are all fine things to desire, I suppose. But once you get there, then what? Well, we want to look for the transcendent there that you'll never achieve this side of heaven but it's something worthy of going after. And I think Paul talks about this in the book of Philippians chapter three, where he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. I think Paul's transcendent there was he wanted to be conformed to Christ. In Romans, he talks about it being conformed to the image of Christ. How does that happen? How do you know you're really doing that? Jesus gave us a very interesting picture. It's found in John 13, right? It was the picture of a servant. And he he modeled it, and he asked his disciples to mimic it and to be like he was. I became a servant to you. You're to serve one another. That is what it means to grow and mature in the Christian life, to be a servant, to look like Jesus, being conformed to his image. So that's the transcendent goal over top of all these other goals that aren't necessarily evil, but they are subservient to the greater goal for the Christian, which is to be conformed to the image of Christ. Is that accurate? Absolutely. There's nothing wrong with wanting to have a quote, the good life, Mm -hmm. a good family, a good job. Those are all fine. That's, that's great. The Proverbs talk about that being a good thing, Mm -hmm. but that's not the only thing. And that's not the end game. The end game is that I might glorify Christ. You know, Paul in 2 Corinthians said something very strange in chapter 3, verse 18. He says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, 
we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty supernatural or mystical, but it involves the fact that I'm becoming and transforming that metamorphosis. I'm being transformed from glory to glory. So that transcendent there has something to do with me being able to reveal and manifest the glory of God more and more in my life. That's great. So let's say I'm convinced that's a, a worthy goal to be pursued, to be more like Christ. But if I'm honest, that sounds like a lot of work. So let's say I'm saved right now. I'm a saved person. I know I'm going to heaven by virtue of belief in the person work of Christ. What's my motivation for putting the work in to pursue maturity? Why should I bother? Well, now that's a good question. That really has two questions to it. On the one hand, why? And the other question is how? You're asking the why question. And that's a good question. That's an issue of motivation. I would say the New Testament routinely provides for us two motivational mechanisms for the spiritual life or motivational mechanisms for the spiritual life. One is really simple. We all know it. It's my appreciation of what he has done for me. I I don't know about you, but I was going to hell and now I'm going to heaven. And that's a great deal. When God got me, he did not get a good deal, right? And you're, you're laughing, but he didn't get yeah. a good deal with you either. No good deals. So my appreciation for what he has done for me forever, yeah. that's enough to motivate me to serve him forever. But there's another motivation. It's not only my appreciation of what he has done for me. It's his appreciation of what I do for him. You say, well, wait, 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 what do you mean? You mean I have to work my way to heaven? No, no, no. We're saved by grace through faith, not by works. But you didn't ask that question. You asked the question, the motivation to living the Christian life. Mm-hmm. That has to do with sanctification. That has to do with realizing that there's coming a day that every Christian is going to one day stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at the Bema seat, which is called the judgment seat of Christ. Philippians talks about it as being the day of Christ, the Bema seat. Oh, wait a minute, I thought Christians weren't going to be judged. Well, yes and no. Christians won't be judged at the great white throne of Revelation 20. That's where non-believers are evaluated and judged for eternal damnation. But every Christian will go to the Bema seat. Bema simply means judgment seat. Jesus stood before Pilate at a Bema seat. Paul stood before Festus at a Bema seat. Bemacy was simply the place where the judge would stand to make an evaluation. Well, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed according to his work done in the body, whether good or bad. Mm-hmm. Romans 14, 10, the exact same thing. 1 John 2, 28, same thing. Ecclesiastes 12, 14, the end of all things is this, fear God, keep his commandments, because one day every work comes into judgment, whether good or bad. There is coming a day, and we cannot escape it as Christians, where we will stand before the king, and he will evaluate my life, and I won't be arguing back trying to reinterpret his interpretation of my life. Mm. This is motivation. Mm. This is one thing, unfortunately, the Christian church has failed to teach because they don't want to talk about eschatology. They don't want to talk about personal eschatology. They just want to say, oh, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. Everything's good. I'm going to play a harp and dance around with the angels. And it's all good. It's all good. Well, it is all good. But we go to the Lord. He evaluates our life. And you say, well, 
what's that for? Simple. We remember the Bible says there's coming a kingdom, a millennial kingdom, Revelation 20, and then the eternal state. And guess what? Jesus is the king in the kingdom. And guess what? He has his faithful followers to help rule and reign that kingdom for a thousand years. Now, I don't know about you, down here in America, we had an election and somebody won. And the first thing that the new president does, where, whoever they are, is they pick a cabinet, right? They, they pick their faithful followers to rule our country. Well, you know what? He didn't call me. He didn't call me up and say, hey, you want to be the secretary of defense? You want to be the secretary of state? He didn't call me up. Well, no wonder he didn't call me up. I didn't vote for him. I didn't work for him. King Jesus, when he comes into his kingdom, he is going to select his cabinet, his faithful, loyal followers who lived for him and died for him. And now he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. I want you to rule and reign for a thousand years with me over all of creation, because let's not forget Hebrews 1. He is the inheritor of all things, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things. And I want to rule with him because I'm not interested in ruling in the cabinet for four years or for eight years. But I'm very interested in ruling and reigning with the king of kings for a thousand years over all of creation. That's my motivation. So you've given us two motivations. One, it seems like looks backwards. Gratitude for what he's done for us propels us to pursue Christ-likeness. The second is looking forward to the Bema seat and the rewards. Would you consider avoiding discipline in this life? or usefulness in this life, looking to now as also incentives? You know, that is a great point. And the Apostle Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. He says, I beat my body black and blue, lest I be disqualified. Now, wait a minute. Is Paul worried that he's going to not go to heaven? No. Is Paul worried that he is going to heaven, but he might lose it and go to hell? No, that's a Calvinistic or an Arminian viewpoint. And Paul wasn't either. Paul said, no, 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 no. I beat my body black and blue. I discipline myself lest I be disqualified from my ministry as an apostle and shame my Lord when I stand before him. So you're exactly right. There is a motivational mechanism in this life and it's to be found faithful and not be ashamed. That's what 1 John 2.28 says. And now, beloved, you know, know, be bold, have confidence when he comes and not shrink back in shame. Absolutely. We want to abide in him so we don't fall back in shame as a parent. So the the Bible gives us lots of motivation for this. And it is at times a grind of pursuing Christ-likeness. It is a taking up our cross, denying ourselves and following Christ every day. It is not easy. I'm wondering if you can help us, though, to describe some of the tools, quote unquote, that we've been given with which we can grow in the Christian life. I don't think the Lord has called us to something, invited us to something, and then not equipped us to do that very task. So what has he given us to accomplish this? Well, you know, we could spend all day on that one, but, (laughs) you know, in one sense, Paul, the apostle, gives us some very interesting insight in Ephesians and in Galatians. He tells us to walk by the Spirit, And he tells us to be filled with the Spirit. So what does it mean to be walking in the Spirit? Well, the contrast was not don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5. So don't be controlled by external force, but be controlled by this internal force of the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So I think the main, if we call it tool, if we call it power, what we should call it is him, the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer is the power by which we live the successful Christian life. The, the greatest passage on this is in Romans. Obviously, Romans 12, some would look at it and say, well, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed, have a metamorphosis, a transformation and be in your mind, right? That takes place by thinking right. You know, we need to think right so we'll act right. But before Romans 12, we find the most significant passage. It's Romans 6 through 8. And we don't have time to unpack the whole passage, but basically it's three things. Number one, in Romans 6, Paul talks about the fact that I live with this old house, this body of sin, this problem, this mortal body. I got a problem. But in chapter 7, he says you got a bigger problem. It's dead. Your body is a dead house, and the flesh is not going to solve your problem. And so some people say, what about the law? Paul says in Romans 7, the law won't help. All the law will do is make you feel more guilty. And then Paul ends chapter 7 saying what? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this bondage? Who? What? How? Ah, Romans 8. And in Romans 8, if you take your Bible and just count the word spirit, 20 times, 21 times, you find the word spirit. I think that's what Paul wants to talk about in Romans 8. The way we overcome the power of sin in our life is through the power of the spirit. And when we walk according to the spirit, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In fact, in Romans 8, and if your folks have a Bible, turn there, Romans 8, 1, very, very important. The translation I have reads this way. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, period. Well, now some people stop there and say, well, that's talking about justification. Well, actually, number one, Paul's not talking about justification. He's talking about sanctification in 6, 7, and 8. And the rest of that passage or the rest of that verse in the majority of Greek manuscripts is read this way. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. That's what Paul is talking about. And then he goes on to discuss what does it mean to walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. It means to have one's mind set on the Spirit, not having one's mind set on the flesh, which sets us up for Romans chapter 12, being transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the power, the ability, the tool, the mechanism is found in the very person of the Godhead, the Spirit of God who indwells me and empowers me, not by law, not by, ooh, I'm going to get up at 3 a.m. every morning, I'm going to read the Bible, and I'm going to make it happen. No, you just be tired and hungry if you do that. The only way that comes about is you say, Lord, your Spirit indwells me. I am a redeemed individual. I have new life in Christ. And I now come and want to submit to the Spirit. I want to study your word. I need the Spirit to illuminate, to enlighten me, to understand your word. Help me walk according to it. And you know what happens when you come with that attitude and with that posture? God shows up and reveals himself. 
That's what David realized in Psalm 119, verses 10 and 12. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. Thy word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against thee. That's the heart that comes to the scripture and the spirit of God transforms us. So if a young Christian came to you, Dr. Shea, with this issue, he's just learned about the motivation for propelling him toward pursuing Christ-likeness, and he understands in theory that he has the power to do that, that God has given himself, his Holy Spirit in him. How would you counsel him to take practical steps even that week to move in the direction that you're saying and implement some of those realities that you're describing? Well, there are a number of things. One would be, you know, we used to call in the old days, have a quiet time, right? Have a quiet time. So get up in the morning, get alone, open your Bible, pray and ask God to show up, to guide you, to lead you, to illuminate, and then read the text and read it again and again, and then say, Lord, help me understand what this means and read it again and read it again, and then say, Lord, how do I apply this today? What's a principle from this passage? So if I'm in Romans 12, 2, and says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, I'm going, Lord, how could I be conformed to this world? Well, if I watch that TV show, or if I read that book or magazine, or if I watch that YouTube, I'm going to be conformed to this world. So Lord, I don't want to do that. Help me be transformed. How can I do that? Well, if I read this book and watch that YouTube and do this, I will be transformed and bring glory to God. So it's behavioral, but it's attitudinal. It's an attitude. It's an action. So I get up, I read, I pray, I read, I pray, and then I principalize truth from God's word. And then I say, so Lord, if I know that if I watch that movie, that that's going to harm me, Lord, guard my eyes, and I don't want to turn the TV on them. And that's how you apply God's word. And Lord, uh, you know what? I know I'm going to the office and I know there's this person at the office who wears things that uh, probably shouldn't be worn, but I can't stop them from wearing it. So I'm going to choose to basically not look at her because I don't need to look at that. And so I go to the office and I go to my office. I look the other way and I do what I can. Now, you don't want to be too obnoxious about it. So people think you're nuts, but you do want to be intentional about it because the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, the world, the flesh, the devil. These are the impediments to the Christian life. So I need to counteract those things. That's why Paul told Timothy, run, run from youthful lust. Run, don't pass. Go, 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 go away. He said, well, that sounds so simple. Yeah, it's also true. It's what we need to do. Could you say a word maybe about the role of Christian community in the sanctification process, if I'm going to pursue godliness, and we have rightly talked about the individual responsibility for me and the Lord, the Spirit dwelling in me over the open Word of God, trying to apply that to my life by His power for His glory. But certainly there's a role to play for the church and the Christian community around me to help me. Maybe a word about that. You know, I look at the church as having the three C's, right? There's the celebration. That's the big church. We get together. We have what we call our worship service. And then maybe there's a smaller group. Maybe we call that Sunday school. And that's where we get together for a little bit deeper study and fellowship with a small, you know, a smaller group of people. But then there's a real small group. Maybe that's my small group. Maybe that's a group of two or three couples or four or five people that I meet with regularly. So there's a celebration time, but then there's a smaller time. Then there's a very small time, a more committed group. All three of those groups of people 
whether it's the celebration or the small cell, all of those communities play a role in my life. And I think Christians need to have people to be held accountable to. Now, uh, I lead a small group. We have a Sunday school class. I'm involved with a small group of people for some accountability stuff. All of these are important and essential. It's not just we study the Bible 24-7, but we also have other people who speak into our lives. And hopefully we have a few, very few, who we give permission to ask the most intimate questions possible to make sure I'm on the right road. So, yeah, the community of the church, whether it's a celebration or a small cell group, all of those communities need to play a role in helping us because the Christian life is not a solo deal. We're not just going out into the desert. Everybody, oh, the desert fathers, they went off to be alone. Yeah, they went crazy out there, too. That, that's not the norm. The norm is community. The church, the gathering, the body, don't forsake it. So what about some stumbling blocks? If I want to pursue Christ-likeness, what are some common hurdles that get in the way for Christians to pursue holiness? Well, nothing has changed. The world, the flesh, and the devil, nothing has changed. The devil is always there to try to intimidate me and to try to cause my flesh, my fallen human nature, to do the wrong thing. And of course, the world it's there. It's supercharging me, wanting me to buy this, do this, look at this, do that, feel that. It's just a three-pronged attack. Internal foe, external foe, infernal foe, right? The devil, the flesh of the body, and the world. They're all after us. So that's not changed. That's what tempted Eve. The devil came, said, ooh, look at this. This will make you wise. This will taste good. You're going to be like God and know all things. It's the same temptation. So number one, we got to be aware that temptation comes. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials, James says. Testings, sometimes tests come to, to teach us and train us. The devil wants to use them to break us. We need to realize we live in a fallen world and we need to be aware. Down here in America, we're finding that the streets are not as safe as they used to be. My wife just went off to go walking with a friend of hers. I said, I told her, I said, now listen, make sure, be aware of your surroundings. Always be aware of your surroundings, whether you're going to the grocery store or you're going out for a walk. Well, in the Christian life, be aware of your surroundings. Be aware of who's around you, what's around you, what's going on. The devil, there's a bullseye on your back. There's a bigger one on your back because you're one of the pastors but there's a bullseye on everybody in your church and the devil wants to line you up and shoot you in the back in your bullseye. So you have to be aware. So being, being aware is to beware of what's going to take place. World, flesh, devil, hmm. nothing's changed. How do I walk the line between uh, being aware of those things that are all very powerful and being sinfully fearful of those things? How do I, navigate between those two extremes. I don't want to live a Christian life that I'm fearful all the time because he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. And yet I do want to be aware and perhaps hyper aware of those things. So how, how would you counsel me to walk between those two extremes? You know, a lot of that has to do with personality. Some people are more fearful than others. Uh, some of that has to do with conscience. Some people have a conscience that says, I can't eat meat or I can't do that. And they become a little bit more from my perspective, a little bit more legalistic. That's a conscience thing. So you've got personality, you've got conscience operating. So that's kind of the parameter of your question. Now, the answer to the question is, I don't know. 
I don't know. You got to read the scripture and say, Lord, I don't want to be fearful. I want to walk in confidence with you. I want to be disciplined, but I want to depend on you. I don't want to be presumptuous. I don't want to take risks I shouldn't take. Now, having said all those things, some people's personality, some people's conscience allows them to be more aggressive and more adventuresome than other people. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that's a personality. That's an internal thing. For me, I tend to be a little more fear averse. I don't want to get out there. I don't want to get risk oriented. I try to be a little more careful. I think it's probably true. The older you get, the more you know aware you become. So young people can sometimes be out there bravely taking the world and da 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 da. And I used to do that, and then it got old, and all of a sudden you get well. Let's hold back a little bit. Let's let's uh, keep focus here. So I don't know the answer to that. I don't know what that perfect balance is. I know it changes with age. It changes with per- personality temperament. It changes with the basic makeup of your conscience. So we need to be sensitive to one another and realize there are some things you can be dogmatic about. And there's some things you can be bulldogmatic about, and there's some things you just don't know. And probably to find that right balance goes back to what you said earlier about being filled with the Spirit. If I'm being filled with the Spirit and walking by the Spirit, the Lord will guide me on that tightrope between fear and awareness, I'm assuming. I think that's true. And that, once again, we're back to being led by the Spirit, not Mm -hmm. being led by what you read in the paper or this or that person says that, but saying, Lord... I don't go to the Pope. I don't go to the priest. I don't go to anybody. I come to you and your spirit indwells me. The scriptures inform me. I'm one of your saints. Lord, lead and guide me. I have a feeling he'll do that. Well, we're talking about Christian growth today, and we've seen that there's motivation for doing it. We're invited to do it. We are filled with gratitude for what God has done for us. We are looking forward to rewards. While there are hurdles, he has equipped us to successfully be conformed to the image of Christ for his glory. I wonder if we can end here. What are some rewards for growth? And this might get personal. What are just some glories of growing in Christ likeness that maybe you've experienced or maybe you've seen experienced by other people and things that the Bible promises? Well, I know the Bible promises that there's coming a day when we will stand at the Bema seat and be rewarded for faithful service. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10, Romans 14, 10, 1 Corinthians 9, 24, 1 Corinthians 3. It's all there. It's in the Old Testament as well. So I know that day is coming. And I know that reward is like Revelation 2, 26, that we will be given the right to rule and reign. Jesus said, my father gave me the right to rule. And to those who overcome, I give them the right to rule. So rulership in the world to come. Now, wait a minute. That takes faith. That means I have to live today in light of tomorrow. That means I have to live today giving up things that are pleasurable for something I can't see in the future. Well, you know what? That takes faith. That takes faith. Jesus said something very interesting uh, that most people don't know. And it's found in Matthew chapter 16. He's talking with Peter and the disciples. And Peter just made a very stupid statement. Uh, And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Now, all of a sudden, Peter's really listening now. And here's what Jesus says in chapter 16, verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
for whoever wishes to save his soul shall lose it, but whoever loses his soul for my sake shall find it. For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with the glory of his Father and with the angels and will then reward every man according to his deeds. Jesus is saying to his disciples and he's saying to me, I want you to live down here on earth in a way that looks like you've lost your life. You've given up the reward of this world. You've lost it. Why would I do that, Lord? Because if you do that, you will actually save it. You lose your life here. You will preserve it there. How do I get it preserved? Because I will recompense you. I will reward you for every deed you have done. Now, how does that translate into English? Simply this. I need to live my life today in light of tomorrow. I need to not live after the, the beauty and the glory of the world of the day. I need to not worry about fame, fortune, power, and pleasure here. I need to live today knowing that that's what awaits me in the future. That means I have to give up what the world says is important in order to gain what Jesus says is important. And guess what? That takes faith. That's great. In our home, we oftentimes talk about it as an eternal perspective. You know, living like eternity is a real thing. I remember there was a time when, when we were younger, my wife and I saw that a lot of our peers were really valuing traveling and seeing the world. And we just didn't have the finances to do that. We were in school and and things were preventing that. But I remember my wife one day saying something to the effect of, you know what, I'm going to travel it in eternity, when it's a new heaven, a new earth, you know, I don't need to necessarily do it today. And the urgency left her. And that can go for all sorts of goals that we have, but I, I'll never forget that lesson that she taught me. That That is a great example of an eternal perspective. We sacrifice today for what we know we have been promised in the future. You know, so many people, they only focus on today, like you said, and what they don't understand is that right now counts forever. Mm-hmm. Jesus lived it. Paul lived it. How did Paul end his life? He's in a hole called jail, and he says, I've finished the course. I've run the race. I've kept the faith. And then he says, there is a reward waiting for me. Wait a minute now, Paul. You got no 401K. You got no 403B. You got no inheritance. You got no family, evidently. The churches don't like you. No one's going to read your stuff. You're going to get killed, and you're talking about, I win? Lunacy makes no sense at all, except that old man understood, I did what Jesus said, I kept the faith, I win. Mm -hmm. Now that's a perspective that said, I'm looking forward to the future. Mm -hmm. In addition to looking forward, like we've been talking about, there are today benefits of pursuing Christ-likeness in the liberty that we feel in the peace with God and the usefulness to God. It is such a blessing to be used by God for his purposes in the lives of the people around us. And I'm sure you would agree with that. Absolutely. It can be a sacrifice, but when you know you're serving him, the sacrifice is little. When you realize that he did it himself, he made the supreme sacrifice. He didn't come out of curiosity. He didn't come out of any personal need. The father sent him on an errand of mercy solely to accomplish my redemption. And that's what he did. And he is fulfilled by now reigning from above. So for me, 
my goal in life is to keep focused on the future. That's what Paul did. That's what we need to do in church. We need to teach and preach eschatology, help people understand it, and realize there is a joy of being filled with the Spirit, knowing you're doing the Lord's work, even if you're in jail, even if you're persecuted, even if you're deprived, you know you're serving Christ, and that's where the glory comes to. Amen. Well, thanks again, Dr. Schaefer, spending the time with us today and helping us think through another very important, very large topic. And hopefully we've done it a little bit of justice in this short chat and maybe a primer on the topic for people to dive into a little deeper on their own. I'm very appreciative of the time you've given us. So thank you. My pleasure to be here with you, Josiah. And thanks everyone for joining us. And until we talk again, grace and peace to you and yours. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are encouraged and learned something new. Visit oakridgebiblechapel.org to listen to sermons and for more information.